Hello, it's Jack Tutor here of Attention Magazine. Welcome to Crucial Listening, the podcast where I speak with musicians and sound artists about three albums that are important to them. My guest this time is Raven Chacon, a Dine composer, artist, improvising musician, and a fabulous interview guest to boot. I had a great time chatting with Raven. There's so much to cover in terms of his recent projects, so I tried to cram in as much as possible in the opening 15 minutes. Among them, Endlings, which is Raven's band with John Dietrich of Deerhoof. Their record Human Form came out earlier this year, and it's fabulous. You can hear them reconfiguring themselves into all these different forms using a variety of different instruments, recording techniques, all manner of things. It's such an exploratory listen. On a couple of tracks, they're joined by Marshall Trammell, a drummer, and one of my favourites, actually. It's a great record. You can head over to endlingswsr.bandcamp.com to check that one out. And I'll include links to that along with everything else that we talk about in this introduction over in the show notes and also over at attentionmagazine.co.uk forward slash crucial listening. Oh, and head over to spiderwebsinthesky.com. That's Raven's website where he catalogues all of his work. Lots of lovely stuff to read through there. Okay, great. Hope you enjoy this one. I certainly did. Thank you for listening as always. I really appreciate it. So lovely to hear the kind comments that you come to me with. Thank you. Okay, this is Raven Chacon on Crucial Listening. Raven, welcome to Crucial Listening. Hi Jack, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. So you're here to talk about three important albums. Before we get stuck into those, I want to ask about a few of your recent upcoming projects, uh, one of which being Sweet Land, which is a work by experimental opera company, The Industry, for which you wrote the music alongside Du Yun. So I understand that was recorded, so there's going to be a released version soon, right? And um, I understand that was recorded live on set at Los Angeles State Historic Park back in March 2020. So maybe we can start by, uh, I mean, what are your memories of, of that day? Yeah, you know, that that was a project that I spent, I would say, 2017 all the way up until the premiere in March of 2020 working on and so this was a this was a huge opera it started off uh you know i think there was actually a point when there was eight or nine mini operas inside of this larger opera and the audience would diverge into different 
timelines and storylines and you know reconverge and what eventually happened was an opera that uh, if you saw both tracks of this opera you would probably see two and a half hours of of this these dual stories happening and so quite quite an immense project duyun and i you know co-composing bits together some of us composing scenes and then the other would respond or write the kind of alternate universe scene of that of that uh previous uh, storyline and uh a cast of maybe 40 40 uh, cast members and ensemble members uh, equal number of musicians uh, instrumentalists so a huge project two actually three stages built outdoors in this park and sure enough what happens is covid shuts the entire thing down after half of the run so we were fortunate enough to have 14 performances of this out of the 28 Mm. and if you can remember that middle of march you know people were following the news and one day I think everybody realized this is serious, you know, and Mm. you started to see more and more folks saying, you know, I'm not going to leave the house today. I should, you know, I have um, fear and, and, uh, you know, conditions that might uh, uh, be best if I stayed indoors. So we started having even instrumentalists uh, starting to say, I can't, I can't be involved anymore. You know, the, the, the world is shutting down. And so what we decided to do is we were already fortunate enough to have a a film crew who was working on a documentary about this opera uh, had been taking footage capturing performances and we decided to have one more performance where we'd capture both video and audio of the entire opera and so to the best of our ability we we gathered and and had a final performance and tried to capture the entire piece in one documentation. So what that ended up being was was a stream that you can now see Sweetland, or at least the Los Angeles version of Sweetland, uh, through through the industry's website and see both tracks of this opera. Uh, but what we had to do is go back into some of the you know audio stems and audio tracks and lay over additional overdubs. Because if you were to see this opera, it takes place in quite unconventional settings. So there, there are custom-built stages in the round. There are places where, um, you know, you could be situated at any part of the of the audience and hear different things or experience different things. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we had to do is is make sure that the audio track captured all of the elements as if you were going to hear a stereo recording. There's also other parts uh, of the experience of Sing Sweetland, such as the metro train driving by, you know, rolling past at inopportune or you know, <laughs> very uh, inopportune, but at the same time, very relevant points in, in the storyline. The storyline talking about the the industry of the United States, you know, the train cutting wow. across and getting from, you know, going from east to west through you know cutting across the land and forming these new colonies across the united states so you wrote the music with duyun um how did you come to work together and um and what was that like as well collaborating with her it sounds like as you say you were working on some bits separately some bits together what was that like 
Uh, it came up upon, you know, that, that came about in a very beautiful way. It, and maybe came about because of the, the huge ideas that Yuval Sharon works with, uh, in, with his projects with the industry. So when he first approached me, I was, I was, I believe the first person he brought onto the project and we started thinking about what this project would be trying to tell the history of the United States, at least from when colonization began up until present day. And he was thinking quite big that maybe, you know, this is such a vast story that it might require multiple viewpoints and multiple labor. And, you know, it's not something that you can wrap up in, in 45 minutes or an hour. Right. And so so we, we began thinking, okay, who else can we bring into this? Who else has a another perspective of, um, you know, there, there's a lot of things happening here. There's immigration. There's the viewpoints of the settlers. Um, there's indigenous folks. There's uh, folks who were forced to come over here, you know, descendants of slaves. And so we tried to bring all these different viewpoints in, you know, bring in an African-American librettist, bring in other Native folks to be involved in the creative team. And we wanted to think, too, about immigration throughout the hundreds of years. And uh, Yuval had brought up Duyun's work, and I had known a little bit about what she does, and I, I absolutely wanted to work with her. And mm -hmm. so she and I uh, had a great time working on this. I mean, it was very, a very collaborative process. It wasn't where the librettist, you know, worked on this and then sent it to us and we didn't know what was it was going to be. We, all of us along the way, had developed the story and, and a lot of the ideas that went into what we're, we are eventually telling in the opera. But I learned a great deal from Duyun. I mean, she and I both work... In across different disciplines, we we are also you know performers and uh, work with electronics and improvisation. And she is very skilled in chamber writing, something that I you know also studied, but I, I definitely do not have the the same chops or experience that she has. So I, I have to say I learned a lot about uh, you know th some things about orchestration or other uh, techniques that I. I hadn't known, you know, in 30 years of composing. And so, yeah, it's really, I think, I think listeners will get an idea of how much the music actually intersects with itself or inverts itself. If Du Yun mm. wrote something in the, in the first part of her feast uh, storyline, when you see the sequel to that, which I wrote, you might hear inversions of what, or subversions of what she wrote. Oh. You will, you will hear us playing with each other's music and uh, and that influence comes across as as a listener throughout the work. So it also features two parallel librettos, right? I think I read somewhere that it was a new experience for you to write something like that. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, the, the um, for myself. I mean, I, I I have worked a few times with voice, at least with cham chamber work, but. I very rarely work with any kind of narrative or libretto. And uh, so to be able to follow that and set, you know, a speech or dialogue to music was was something that I had to, uh, you know, work towards and, and was a completely new experience, writing experience for me. And I think that that's some of the the um, 
the knowledge that I, that I gained from Duyun, you know, how to approach these things, what works, what doesn't work, what, even that it doesn't have to be a linear dialogue, you know, things mm. can over, voices can overlap, voices can interrupt each other. And I think a lot of what we're talking about here is these grand interruptions of culture, of, you know, colliding with each other. And so that, that becomes evident in, you know, the way measures of music are happening within this opera. Amazing. Well, I'll include links to Sweetland in the show notes as well. Like I say, I think there's so there's a stream you referred to, and also a a, a record that comes in both standard and deluxe editions. So I'll pop links in to the show notes for those. A uh, couple of other releases that you've had recently, Raven, that I wanted to touch on. One of which is White People Killed Them, which is a collaborative record alongside John Dietrich and Marshall Trammell. Now, I understand this one spilled out of the sessions for your recent record with John as Endlings. So how did you end up recording a, a record with Marshall? And again, what are your memories of the the sessions between the three of you? Yeah, well, well John and I have been performing together, performing and recording and um, composing work together for almost 10 years now, since he moved to Albuquerque. And... Uh, and so we put together this project called Endlings, where we are basically playing instruments that we we don't know how to play. I mean, he's a he's a phenomenal <laughs> guitarist, uh, as you know from his work in Deerhoof, and uh, mm-hmm. and that's also my instrument. So I was thinking, you know, we were both thinking nobody wants to hear two guitarists just play, you know, playing together. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they already do that fantastically in Deerhoof. So um, so we started thinking, well, you know, we 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 both kind of accumulate instruments. We we like to think we're both. Uh, our skills are editing you know we 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 mm. we like to play but we also like to just edit and so that's really what endlings comes down to is is a lot of improvisation a lot of playing together sometimes roping in other folks but then sitting down at the you know on the computer at the and and putting it all together you know piecing it together spending weeks composing you know seconds of this thing whereas it <laughs> started as spontaneous music uh, you know, we we pick through all of this these hours of of music making and turn it into songs. We we still refer to them as songs, and it's it's something that's quite refreshing to me, me because a lot of the other work is maybe more long form or or mm. gets gets uh, labeled as a composition or a, a chamber work, and so to get back to some you know something that is is referred to as a song is something I. I I constantly get excited about with this project. Mm. Now, having having said that, we Marshall Tremel, a, a friend of ours and drummer, he was he was actually in town also to do a more collaborative uh, art project on a outdoor art lot that my wife and I have. And of course, uh, him being him being a, a brilliant musician, we wanted him to play on some of this endlings. Uh, stuff we were working on for this second album we did called Human Form, and uh, and so we we said you know play to this one, play to that one, and we we were done with that. And he said, I think it was he had said, well the drum kit is already out. Let's play, you know, let's keep playing. And so we sat and the rest of the day just played, you know, maybe mm. a, a few more uh, kind of. 20 minute chunks so actually getting out of the the short snippets and <laughs> going back into a long form improvisation and and yeah this is what this is what ended up becoming of that this uh, white people killed them 
and it's very much in this kind of free jazz noise genre i suppose if if one can call it that and um and again i mean on the other hand on the other side of this uh, composition approach that john and i have been taking this equally was refreshing to just sit with with marshall and just and just play none of it's edited Mm. we took we took where we thought was the beginning and about 20 minutes later chopped it off and had it there and um and Marshall actually sent it to Siege and said, you know, here's some other recordings. And they, they said, we'd love to put this out. And so they, he said, you know, do you have a name for this? And Marshall said, well, you know, I'd been traveling a lot and I'd been going to these different markers. You know, you see these kinds of uh, little obelisks sometimes around the U.S. describing uh, events that have happened, you know, and... He said, he said a few, I've stopped at a few of these across the Southwest, and some of them almost, they say the same thing. Basically, white people killed them. And so, right. so he said, I would like to name this um, album this. And we said, okay. You know, if, if there's no words on the album, there's, not, there's no other reference to uh, history like there, you might see in Sweetland. Uh, but at least the title is an opportunity to to ask these questions, you know, and that's mm. that's been the, a lot of the feedback so far is saying, well, you know, what is this? What does this title imply? Right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, the, we just kind of leave it hanging as that proposition. Yeah, I saw in fact, I think it was Siege who posted a very short extract of a conversation between the three of you about the origins of that record, which padded it out a bit. But again, still left a lot left unanswered which um again i guess as you say is uh part of the charm of it absolutely absolutely i mean uh, we uh, at the same time too this was uh i mean this was i believe pre-covid when we recorded this but it was also when you were starting to see a lot of protests happening around the united states a lot mm. of them uh, relating to you know the confederate monuments that were happening in the south yeah and a lot of this came into a head here in the southwest with conquistador monuments and so there were some events that happened last summer where you know some members of our music community here in new mexico there was a member who was um you know trying to remove this statue and was shot so um you know all of this all of this going on while we are still continuing to make our our artwork and it's it's very possible when these things are happening in the world that it ends up in the music you're making of course yeah one more record i want to touch on before we get to important albums is your recent solo record an anthology of chance operations which is your first solo record for many years as i understand so i've heard in a separate interview and i can't remember who it's with right now but you do this really awesome run through as to the origins of each of the pieces there's also bits on the Bandcamp page to which illuminate the source of of these tracks um it's a record that pulls in so many lovely directions and it feels i think so beautifully whole as well but i'm wondering from your end i mean what is the factor that that unifies that record you've got you know um recordings of installations you've got um recordings taken from 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 classrooms all manner of different styles of piece so so what unifies this set as far as uh well from your your perspective the main thing that unifies it would have to be maybe how it came together and what had happened was that 
uh, I had been making compositions, you know, for the past 10 years. And as you just said, that uh, the, the previous solo full-length album was maybe back in 2000, maybe 2010, maybe 2011 that came out. Hmm. And so I had been working towards putting together some kind kind of follow-up to that, but just didn't have any kind of, I don't actually, to be honest, no time to, right. to come up with anything new. And when this uh, this label, Ouida, based out of Italy, uh, contacted me over lockdown and said, uh, you know, would you would you be interested in putting out a, a record? And I said, well, it was the same thing. I mean, I was uh, my my mind was definitely not on on making a new recording. So I said, let me let me look back and see what I have. And so, looking back through uh, hard drives, it was it was that COVID, this lockdown, had allowed me to actually sit with things I had made and maybe just put aside and left on a hard drive. And I was traveling so much to actually have this time during the last year to sit and listen to all of this stuff. Right, yeah. I was able to see some some things that fit together, you know, some it was basically um I don't want to use the word diary, but it was almost like just kind of uh, following the 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 things I had done over over the past 10 years. And so I started piecing these things together. Some of them they exist as uh, previously as documentation of a performance or of an installation. Others were filled recordings that I captured. And, um, you know, for instance, there's the one where I capture children in a classroom that I was teaching, trying to play the stereotypical five-hole uh, Native American flute. And they're never going to get it right. And so you hear, <laughs> you hear this dissonance that on the other end, is when you realize what it is, is, is quite beautiful. Mm. And uh, there, all of it is solo, solo actions or, or field recordings. The exception to that is a, is a um, kind of jam I had with composer Mark Sabat uh, years ago at the Banff Center in, in Canada. And he and I, he had these microtonal instruments, a microtonal, I think it was a harmonium or something, and uh, and then of his viola. And so playing with him on one of these tracks is, is one of my favorites on the album. Uh, and all of it just kind of, you know, I call it chance operations, but chant, uh, you know, kind of a play on words with the word chant, but all of it coming together, I guess, maybe maybe a bit randomly, maybe, maybe just... Uh, hmm for myself being surprised that these uh, recordings that have nothing to do with each other and were definitely not recorded around the same era of each other um, fit together in this way. I like it. It's like, it feels to me like arriving at someone's writing desk after they've left and then drawing like a constellation from what's there. It's got a nice, you know, you almost have to meet that experience halfway and as a listener, try and cultivate a sense of cohesion that becomes almost a vital aspect of the experience, which I really like. Thank you. So, Raven, we can move on to your important records. Um, before we get into any one of them specifically, I'd like to ask about how you thought about the word important when picking your list. So was there a way you understood the word important in order to come up with this list of three records? Well, the impulse for me, you know, when when you presented that and and knowing about your show was was thinking about well, are, are they important to what I ended up doing? And I think maybe one of them I can say is very influential, um, at least in in the trajectory I went. 
and then you you have to ask yourself as an artist well are you still influenced by other things and i think uh you know another one of these i would say uh, the word important is 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 the label for that situation Hmm. and then there's another one that i think maybe more broadly i think is important in the sense that it's it's extremely relevant to right now even though it's an album that was made uh, some years back but i think it has importance for for a broader community and and my hope is that you know uh, that that listeners would be able to to be aware of this work if they weren't before and so so yeah all of them not necessarily important or influential to what i'm doing now but all of them i feel uh, you know, to be a much better artist because of just knowing that they exist. Awesome. Well, I'll let you pick which one we go with first, Raven. Which one do you want to start with? The first one is, uh, you know, uh, is an album I I came across. I would say it's not this album. I'd say the, their first album I came across completely accidentally through tape trading and, um, you know, with, with other young people my age. I grew up in a very rural place on the Navajo Reservation and eventually the family moved to New Mexico and I still lived in a somewhat rural village uh, growing up and it was very rare to come across any new music. Definitely something that wasn't uh, going to be on the radio or on television would be very rare to to come across at least in, in uh, music that's being made all over the rural or all over the country. So in these small circles of you know tape trading amongst your neighbors and the other kids i was trying to seek out you know more and more let's say heavy metal or thrash metal Mm. and somebody gives me this tape of this most ridiculous stuff i'm hearing this (laughs) band mr bungle (laughs) and i'm i'm thinking wow what what is this you know i can there's obvious heavy metal influence in it and there's every 45 seconds or something you'll hear a, a you know, heavy metal riff or something <laughs> yeah. uh, or 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 more but then there's all this other information coming at you but you know there's also filled recordings very you know scatological <laughs> things happening in this in this first uh, record but for a you know a 12 year old kid 13 year old kid uh, this is absolutely mind blowing and so i'm not going to talk about that first album but I think it was the second one that came out you know, years later. I don't know, maybe four years later. And I am already uh, a person who has decided, I think, that they are going to play music for the rest of their life and just wants to hear more and more experimentation. I am still not getting adequate access to so-called experimental music happening in the world. So, uh, you know, Mr. Bungle's second album, Disco Volante, I'm, he- I'm able to hear m- even more you know, even more references to to this experimentalism and starting to understand more and more maybe how it's being made, maybe what the, the variety of sounds can be. You know, it's gone beyond the the kind of heavy metal circus music of the first one. It's it's turned into something else now, something something with a lot more uh, a deeper world to it, a deeper texture. Maybe even the playing and has become more sophisticated, mm. and so so yeah. So that's the first one I think I'd like to talk about, and it um, you know I haven't really listened to it after, since maybe being a <laughs> a, a twenty year old. You know, I mean that may, it came out maybe I was about seventeen or so, but I think for myself it be it was 
I, I started realizing they're, they're, if somebody can, if a group of people can come out with this kind of music, then I'm, it got me curious about what else exists. Yeah, it's interesting you've gone for the second one, actually, and it wasn't the first one you heard, because I know with a lot of people, when they come on to this show and reference a band whose record has been particularly pivotal, it's the first one that they heard, because that was the one that did the the breaking you know, of the of the mind and sort of saying, okay, this is possible. So what was it about Disco Volante? I mean, you've mentioned a, a bit there about the fact that they're maybe getting a bit more into their groove perhaps on this record. But what was it about this record compared to the first that was the one that really fired you up? Well, I, uh, I think even as a young person was wondering if the first one was a joke or, <laughs> or an experiment or uh-huh. something or even something maybe you know i think my first time listening to that i i imagine they were these very old older you know people uh with with you know 40 years of music experience pulling pulling my leg like a, like a frank zappa or somebody <laughs> yeah and and i think over time you know getting the bits of information i was able to get that i realized oh they're not that much much older you know they're in their 20s or so and um and and obviously it was it was um it didn't sound random i mean it didn't sound like okay we're gonna do this and then every 10 seconds jump to a new genre there there seemed to me to be a lot of intentionality and a lot of a lot of care if you will in how it was composed and and an unpredictability that seemed uh logical if if that can be said it again yeah. it didn't seem like somebody just said okay we'll splice this in here and do this and i think at the same time too it, a lot has to be said about the the way it was recorded or or came to you know came to be and and also i think somewhere in there i was seeing that they were touring and i was like oh my god you can actually go see this happen live <laughs> i wasn't able to i don't think i was old enough to go see it live you know and 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 uh, get to the nearest town where they might have been playing but i think i think it was that it was uh, an obviously mature step up from the other one and that's that's why it stuck with me and and it you know there's there's sections here i think there's this really long 10 minute one called the bends which which doesn't change like the other songs it's just kind of this you know droney uh filled recording-ish atmosphere that that um you know was was in itself jarring i think to to expect genre changes so quickly and then come across something like that is was another left field (laughs) thing that i had never heard before Uh uh-huh and so you have all, yeah, you just have all of this. Um, I mean, noise too. This was the I was interested in noise as a genre, but I think this might have been the first time I had heard, you know, noise. What the, what we call the genre of noise, just kind of screeching, harsh, um, you know, electronics that are, you know, and it, it might only happen. I can't even describe where these things happen in these Mr. Bungle albums. They just kind of emerge, <laughs> and then next thing you know, you're hearing to you're hearing Elvis impersonation or something. Right. Um, but all of it just completely, completely uh, blew my mind. Made me realize, um, you know, the, you you should learn some instruments, <laughs> and be, become proficient in them. But uh, but also at the same time, I was I was trying to figure out. Uh, 
you know, recording on a four track machine and, and all of it became very influential in all aspects of what I was learning to do. And, you know, years later, I, I got to know Trace Bruance a bit and I, I relayed to him. I was like, man, I mean, this blew my mind. And I don't know if I'd be doing what I do today without the work that these guys did. Wow. Did you say that to him? Yeah, yeah, he, uh, yeah, he said, well, thanks. <laughs> yeah, but uh, no, he's, he, he, actually, he came to Sweetland. He saw Sweetland in oh, one of those wow. uh, performances. So, um, no, we've stayed in good contact. And, um, yeah, I, I can't say enough how much, uh, I don't know what I'd be doing if I didn't hear the, this music and that first album at, the, at that time. If I had heard it too late, I might be some kind of, uh, I don't know, academic music snob. <laughs> wow. <laughs> So you discovered the first through a, a tape trade, as you said, which is, that's really cool. I mean, in fact, while we're on that, what kind of stuff were you feeding into the tape trades? So when someone was giving you Mr. Bungle, what were you passing back? Oh, I can't remember. You know, I, th- I think we would just be pl- passing around uh, the next faster and faster and more shreddable music, you know, this kind of whatever turned into <laughs> death metal and, and grindcore. You know, that was, I think that was another... Thing that led me to this this uh, music that I was seeking was heavy metal had become at least in my small world it kept getting faster and the vocals kept getting more Cookie Monster right and yeah the the and the guitarist kept getting more virtuosic and precise and I and the and the recording quality and production became cleaner and cleaner for some reason at least with what i was getting exposed mm. to and and i wanted the opposite of all of that you know i didn't necessarily need it to be faster and faster or cleaner and cleaner or more virtuosic i wanted to hear i wanted to hear just ugliness you know or if maybe and and realizing that maybe it wasn't ugliness it was just different i don't know different ideas of time different ideas of texture and um different kinds of drumming than the fastest drumming possible maybe maybe no drum <laughs> drums at all and and to hear things like drones and harsh noise i mean that was that was um uh, i think i abandoned I, I would say i wasn't wasn't as big of a heavy metal fan after <laughs> after <laughs> becoming aware of all the other ways you can you can um hear distortion right yeah of course um I mean, this sounds like a record that potentially, I have to say, so it's interesting you brought up this record because I think a couple of episodes back, um, Robert Kagenvan came on and picked a Naked City record. Do you know Naked City? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I felt almost primed, like I'd done my stretches for Disco Volante, simply by hearing that grand Guignol yeah 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 and and you know i eventually became aware of that music too and um put the connection together i think john zorn had produced the first mr bungle album or or at least put his name on it and um and so that whole world came you know became open to me and um and naked city was another one yeah but but of course those maybe those were the as i said the older folks that were right (laughs) doing this and and for for me to hear you know understand that these are um what I've come to learn too through their most recent album they put out last year, Mr. Bungle, that they they had the same trajectory as I did. I mean, they they were making a metal band, you know, a thrash metal band, and uh, and it eventually led them to making music like this. It's a shared experience that I'm um, that I can relate to. Is it a record that you liked straight away as well? Going from like say wanting harsher and harsher stuff, and I guess also as well the real 
switch that happens with this record is it starts effectively with almost like a sludge metal thing and within minutes then you're in this sort of um i don't know lounge jazzy organ driven thing so i mean was it one that appealed to you straight away completely yeah i mean you know the as i was saying i was i was becoming fatigued with or frustrated with this virtuosity in heavy metal this speed and that so that first song that first song for me was that response was that solution uh-huh. was 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 that ugliness you know <laughs> yeah. just sounded like like some kind of uh, melting monsters uh, singing growling into this thing and and uh, detuned instruments i mean that you that's what you should be doing is detuning instruments not uh, <laughs> not having this floyd rose uh, you know precise shreddable guitar uh, yeah, your guitars should should sound as as bad as possible. So <laughs> when I first heard that, yeah, that I think it's called "Everyone I Went to High School With Is Dead." Mm. Uh, yeah, I, I, uh, yeah, I love that. And then the second one is sounds like the first album. So I was, okay, we're back on track. I didn't <laughs> I didn't get ripped off here. Um, and more and more, you know, it goes through these different uh, references, you know, music concrete and uh, and techno as you know something that was starting to emerge so you're hearing things be also referenced and in uh, some kind of real time you know you're you're, i'm becoming aware of these other you know techno music and things and then you you hear it by way of these folks and so yeah so i mean it was it was um something i i can say i i listened to for yeah a year probably tried to analyze it. I even think when I started music school, you know, started, went into college, university, and um, was studying, I, I think I tried to make transcriptions of these things. And uh, oh, wow. I'll have to go back, go back and find them and see if they make any sense now, <laughs> no, knowing what I know. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, there's some really interesting moments on this, this album, right? So I, yeah. what one bit that really stood out to me and I read a bit about it as well is I heard that one of the band members went back and like recorded over a section of the song that they'd been excluded from right so you get this really nice charming insight into sort of the I guess the humor between them the like nature of self-production as well while they're just all welded to the studio putting this stuff together um. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that story, and I and I believe that I mean I never owned the vinyl version of this, but that if you put the needle in one of the other grooves, then that's the only way you will hear that secret no song. No way! I think. Wow! Yeah, oh, that's yeah. so cool. <laughs> um, so you listened to it solidly for a year. You said it and uh, transcribing it. I mean, so it sounds like it slipped out of your life at a certain point. So has it ever come back in as a listening experience? I think here and there. I think here and there, I, I might, you know, have have tossed it on. Definitely, when when the internet became, um, you know, more common, and you could, you could conjure up any song on YouTube or whatever, or you know, now Spotify or whatever. I don't want to plug these services, but uh, <laughs> you know, when you you can you can have more access now because of the internet. I, I mm-hmm. definitely, it's you know, here and there, I'll be like, yeah, what? I guess like revisiting a, a friend. Yeah, you know, yeah, and and it conjures all these memories of whatever I was doing as a, as a young, you know, as a teenager, and uh, but but also exploring music, you know, you know, locking myself in the room and just trying to, you know, play back some of this stuff on the piano or the the guitar. Come on. Come on. 
Raven, let's go to your second important record. So where do you want to go now? Well, the second one I think I'd like to, to talk about is, is composer Jose Maceda. And his work I, I didn't know enough about. I wish I wish I had been exposed to this also as, as a young person or even as an undergrad, you know, music major. You know, having... You know, in the school I went to, we were taught Schoenberg and all of this music that was happening in the 20th century, and um, you know the the usual suspects, you know Cage and uh, Ives and all these folks. And um, I, I I wish I had learned more about uh, composers who were doing things on the other side of the planet. Right. And I think later on, you know, somewhere in grad school, I first had come upon a Jose Maceda score. And so, um, and so I, I wanted to, to talk about one of his pieces, and I wasn't sure which one. Right before lockdown, I was invited to do a, a concert in the Philippines, in Manila. And uh, there was an exhibition happening, and I, I was really fortunate to be able to, to go out there. And... You know, I was, I was just brought out to do one gig, but I allowed myself a few extra days because I wanted to go to the Jose Maceda archives at the university in Quezon City. And so I was able to do that and see a whole lot of scores I, I was unaware of. And they also have all of these instruments that he's worked with, uh, traditional Philippine uh, instruments. And just a uh, phenomenal resource for 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 the world, really. And I, th- I believe a lot of this archive is online, uh, not only of his of his work, but of re- field recordings, transcriptions he's made of of uh, traditional music in the Philippines. So yeah, so I wanted you know, in thinking about uh, wh- which piece to share with you, I, I was thinking about one of the scores I saw at the archive, and there was this massive. Huge, like physically huge score called Ugnayan, I think is how you say this piece. And right away on the score, I think it said something for for uh, radio stations. The piece is composed for radio stations, but it's completely notated. So I I looked further in the score and was wondering why it's says it's for twenty or more mu- uh, radio stations, but then there's all this notation. And you look through the score, and there's 50 parts. So it looks like an orchestral piece. And it's all handwritten, which is blowing my mind that every little dot almost needed a microscope to look at each part. And I'm realizing that this is actually a piece for uh, instruments, for some of these instruments I had just seen in the archive, too. These um, uh, gongs, and there's one called a kalitong, which is uh, a zither. And all these other uh, instruments, buzzers, these kind of bamboo mm. uh, stalks with some slits in them. So when you when you shake them or, or snap them, they make this buzzing sound. And so you have all of these instruments, flutes. Uh, I think there's there's one called a, a bamboo horn. And I apologize for not knowing the the Fil- Filipino word for these instruments, but um, but you have a very large piece composed for I think it's actually composed for 300 or more people 100 people are playing the bamboo stocks uh, 20 people are playing the 
the bamboo horns. The there's probably thirty zither players, and I think there's um, you know all these other uh, uh, percussive instruments that are also in the piece. So listening to this piece, you you hear all of this pointillistic texture, and I'm sure people have you know the, for of the very few writing bits of writing out there about Jose Maceda's work. A very obvious thing to say would be that it's uh, you know it's like rain or something. It's kind of you know right yeah. It, it may be referencing these sounds or even ships. You know these bamboo deep bamboo horns how they sound like these ships. There's a lot of possible narrative to put into this, but um, but just the form of being able to to have a hundred different rhythmic lines, intentional rhythmic lines. I don't believe there's any part passages that are meant to be improvised. Um, how they, they kind of separate and you start hearing melodies emerge out of this and you know over an hour long you you, you go all these different places you hear so much different uh, so many different sounds and I, I don't know how many recordings exist of this I, I think uh, John Zorn's label had put out maybe possibly the only recording of this mm. but even the quality of that I think they captured with what they could at the time in the situation they could and and you still hear so much inside of that and so i I guess in in you know looking through the score and and trying to find out more about it did i come to realize that what the piece really is was to capture those individual sectionals you know the the buzzers the flutes the gongs the zithers and record those and distribute those to every radio station in manila to be played at the same time and it was coordinated that the public was asked to go outside and with transistor radios, you know, boom boxes, whatever existed, play this, you know, replay it back to to the city. Hmm. So it became a performance not only of the 300 or so performers who play from the score, but it became a performance that the city would enact, that the millions of people would would hear and play back. And so um, it's been said that you know this might be the one of the largest listenings of of contemporary music that existed uh, in the 20th century. Potentially, uh, three million people heard this piece. That's unreal. I mean, when I read about the event, so I think the broadcast, the original broadcast, was 1974, right? So mm-hmm. uh, an hour between six and seven p.m. I was like, why haven't I heard of this? This is massive. Um, and so I read that, like, there were 142 locations called Ugnayan centers. And in one of the biggest, there were 15,000 people congregated with personal radios. Wow. Which wow. is unreal. <laughs> um, and as well, there seemed to be, I mean, I, I don't know how much you know about the background. I read a little bit about it uh, i think aki onda also wrote a quite a nice article about this piece as well but there seemed to be a really interesting kind of political backdrop to this piece too i don't know how much you know about that i've only read like little bits i don't no i don't yeah uh, yeah please share it sounds like it was supported by the regime in charge at the time but 
there almost seemed to be a bit of ambiguity over that. I mean, it, it sounded like it was it was sort of celebrated as a means of bringing together indigenous Filipino culture and m- modernist aesthetics. Um, mm-hmm. But then also, I think there was a, a, a martial law in place in 1972 with regards to people congregating in public spaces. So it's a really wild contradiction of, you know, it's this thing that's being held up by the state, but also contravenes it in its very performance. Yeah, this is amazing. I love the way also as well that you came into it through the... So you came into it through the score first, right, without hearing it and just having to piece it together based on the materials there. That's right, yeah. Yeah, it's just so coming cool. upon the score. And I'm, I'm equally frustrated that this is not more known, you know, to, to those of us around the world um, who are interested in new music. Um, that uh, you know, very few know of Jose Maceda's work, and um, and yeah, I think for for me the importance of it is is as you were speaking about, and I, I do remember the Akionda's writing on this was um, that that it merges these um, you know indigenous instruments, bringing those to be heard, mm. but in the context of contemporary music, so escaping time in that way. I mean, you know, a lot of times a, a uh, composer who's working with their own indigenous instruments or indigenous music is automatically going to be put in an unfortunate position of having to also be an ethnomusicologist right? You know, in, right. instead of a composer. <laughs> and so I think you know, Jose Maceda, to me, is the more I learn about the work and the tactics behind this to to explode that onto the city, you know, to share that with everybody is such a radical gesture that um, cannot be locked away in a in a conservatory or in an right. ethnomusicology department or in a museum you know it had to be put out onto the streets yeah that's what i think so wonderful is that you can have i guess work presented in a gallery which uh addresses or purports to celebrate indigeneity but that act of enclosure in itself is is i suppose can be seen as you know a form of reining that in or, or, or keeping it within particular boundaries. I just love the the way this has been spilled across the entire of Manila, just completely unignorable. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I know as well, you work with works that are very three-dimensional and bring in, say, like entire neighborhoods, um, entire cities. Like you've got American Legend Number no. 2, which is referenced to as a site-specific score for the city of Tulsa, Oklahoma and surrounding areas. Um, I wanted to ask, while we're talking about this record, I mean, what is it that appeals to you about working with such large spaces and drawing in such, you know, embedding works, I guess, within existing environments like that? Yeah, I, I guess I started thinking about a few a few things. I mean, the first one, and this probably goes back to my earliest works, was, you know... You, when you're, you're starting to learn about sound and acoustics and these kinds of things. And then you, you, there, this discussion keeps coming up of, oh, well, the, the room should be treated or how does the room sound? You know, we keep thinking <laughs> about, you know, the context of this in a concert hall. And somewhere in there, I why do we need, even need the room? Why do we need the walls? <laughs> you know, just do the gig outside, you know, or, or and you won't have to you won't have to place the microphone and <laughs> worry about reflection or whatever. Right. Um, and I and I, so I started doing works outside. You know, I started making feedback with the electric guitar outside and just um i don't know just seeing what happens and and a lot of the works on my newest album they were a lot of them are 
recorded outside or it's a field recording of some situation outside uh, obviously you know building a fire or something you're gonna have to do that outside or, right or, <laughs> or, or shoot a firearm you know but um, but so that was one thing was just thinking well it doesn't have to be inside and then um, another part of it was thinking well one can make a, a music piece about history or about place or about a historical event uh, but what better place to do that than the place itself? You know, mm. it, it, it makes maybe no sense for me to to make a work about Tulsa, Oklahoma, and premiere it in New York City. Right. Why not just do it in Tulsa, Oklahoma, at that spot that you're talking about? And I think the third part of it to me was accessibility. If why why show the piece in New York City and charge forty dollars a ticket to go see this thing? Just Put it out there in the spot that we're talking about, and anybody could mm. show up at the right or wrong time and hear it. And so that's my; those are my motivations for doing that. And in that sense, you know, then there was an opportunity to display the score in other ways. The score could become an object. The score could become a billboard. The score could become a flag on the flagpole mm. of the courthouse that you're talking about. Or the parking lot where a massacre happened years ago. Uh, to me, that's that's the piece, and it's not necessarily roping in the right musicians, so-called musicians. Maybe maybe I compose a piece that anybody can play. That the people who have lived there and their parents live there and their grandparents have lived there, they should be able to play the piece. So that's how this American Ledger series uh, started and kind of the idea that keeps it going is that the the score itself does not have to be a a document in the traditional sense maybe it's an object uh, made in this place or presented in this place and maybe the performers are the people in the place we are speaking about and then the venue is this spot of conflict that's so cool i mean because i guess as soon as you blow open the venue the question that you raised with regards to accessibility suddenly it feels futile to try and then insert barriers to accessibility in the form of or, or participation rather as well you know if you say right well let's do the piece in Tulsa but then still bring in musicians from New York to do it there's a uh, still you know there's 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 still a sort of um, incongruence in terms of like still not fully embedded within that environment right yeah yeah and a lot of it you know when we start thinking about just how to produce these things you know the, I, we, we're, we're definitely more conscious about you know the carbon footprint even why why bring yeah. these musicians who, uh from so elsewhere to ship them in and have them play um you know and and also we we are always in a in a situation where we're trying to Bring more people to to be aware of of experimental music. Of you know, we're trying to not we're this. We're not trying to make an exclusive community of people who are you know too educated to appreciate these sounds. Mm -hmm. Anybody can anybody can listen to this. We hope anybody can listen to this or watch it. Children should be able to see this performance and ask questions. You know, we're all asking questions, so that's that's the hope.
Raven, let's go on to your final important record. So again, give me the name of it and then a bit about why this one made the list. So, so the third one I was thinking about, you know, I was, I was trying to think of something that was composed in this, this past decade, this past 10 years. And there's an artist I've been aware of uh, for a few years named More Mother. And More Mother is an American composer. And, uh, and this first album I heard of theirs is, is called Fetish Bones. And was a, a totally another experience where I, I, I asked myself, I said, you know, what, what am I hearing? What is... I mean, I didn't. I don't even know if I had time to think of that. It it, it was right. being told to to me. I was being uh, reminded of atrocities that were happening now. Mm. You know, and and this was not through the news or the internet. This was through words and something I hadn't hadn't uh, been able to experience. Maybe you know, I, I, I admit, maybe I. I of not seeing enough contemporary poets or, or listen to enough um, even uh, maybe speeches of, of, of these urgencies. You know, we all do what we can of our own communities, but this, when I first put this on and heard it immediately, it, it, it was telling me all of these urgencies that were happening. Um, I shouldn't even say telling. They were... They were screaming at me they were they mm. were reminding me they were they were yelling at me to listen to to them and so um one thing that also caught me right away was this the first song is called creation myth and this is a this is a phrase i use throughout my work all the time thinking about you know what all the way through Sweetland, you know, what are what are we talking about? Are we talking about history? Mm. Are we talking about myth? How far back do we go when we talk about creation stories of you know my tribe, the Navajo? Um, is it myth? Did somebody start calling it a myth all of a sudden and made us believe it was a myth? Mm. Um, you know, or is it history? What is it? And is is it even history we're talking about right now? We're talking about something that happened today. And so I thought that was that spoke to me. You know, the title of that. And in, in that song, more mother is talking about uh, you know you know the the events such as the man who was uh, tortured in in Texas, Jasper, Texas, and so I'm realizing that this is um, yeah this is urgent and this and I had not see heard any artists uh, delivering it in this way, and also you know and with sonorities I mean you're hearing you know it delivered vocally as as what might be referred to as, as, as rap, right? Or, or you're hearing noise, you're hearing yeah. the, the sonorities of, um, uh, of harsh noise, of industrial music, of drum machines, but none of it all put together in quite this way. We can talk more about as well the, the, the way this record is produced. There is so much going on, and I suppose as well, without having read tons about it, again, it feeds back into the, the expression at the root of this record you know, the rage and the trauma. But there's so much sonically, like it's incredibly dense. And this is true as well of uh, subsequent works. But um, like, right, there's there's bits of jazz in there. There's what sounds like maybe gospel in there, just tucked in there. There's whispered voices. There's this like real act of compression going on. Um, 
what was it about the record in terms of its like production as well as Kamei's vocals that that appealed to you? Well, I think I think it was that juxtaposition. I mean, quite different in and obviously from like let's say Disco Volante, right? None, nonetheless, still these jarring. Um, uh, dissonances, and by dissonances, I don't mean pitch. I mean, I mean that yeah, you might hear jazz, and then you might hear harsh noise. You know, in there coming together, harmonizing, if you will, um, to just to jar you. You know, and it happens at such a speed. Yeah, I can't explain. I can't. Exp- this is an album that um, really plays with time. I mean, it, it. Sometimes I listen to this, and it sounds too short. Sometimes I listen to it and it sounds like it's gone on for quite a long time. Yes, yeah. And uh, I, I love that. I love when when an album will do that for me. But also, this other layer of time, where Kamei is talking about, um, you know, it's talking about something, but then saying, speaking about it as if as if uh, they're a ghost, as the as the narrator is is already dead. You know, yeah. so it's like past and future gets referenced in the same line sometimes and it i think it says something about what i was saying earlier about this um we're not talking about old history we're not talking about what people think happened 200 years ago or this you know the civil war you always hear that the civil war wasn't that long ago you know the civil rights the civil rights era was not that long ago you know we, we were fighting for our rights you know, 40 years ago, and then you, you, you put it that way, and then you say, well, we're still fighting for these things. Mm-hmm. And so so the way that the narrative works in these songs is, is constantly like that, saying, you know, I, I I can't remember any particular lines, but referencing things as if they were coming or had happened, but they're still alive. You know, there's there's death and, and still living, uh, being referenced at the same time in, in this piece. Yeah. Or these pieces, yeah. I think there's a line, again, I can't remember the exact line, but on her newest record as well, which is to do with basically linear clock time being something of a myth or an imposition, essentially, on the multitude of possibilities of understanding time, which gives Mm -hmm. it a kind of ominous Mm -hmm. energy, the way that we, we, you know, we're, I guess, forced to exist communally on this linear plane of time which I, I suppose allows more readily certain things to be treated as if they're in the past and have already happened um which i thought was really potent definitely seems to be resonant throughout fetish bones as well absolutely you know and and um i've seen references to to um you know the afrofuturism of of this work and it it makes me think of the the similar things that are happening with you know indigenous artists and thinking about the future and and how that is meant to be an optimistic proposition but what mm. I, what i really love about more mother's work is it even has you questioning that saying you know you know this is the this is the future i think it's what it's saying is is the same thing i would i would want to say as well as we are not trying to envision the future we're trying to deal with this now you know uh-huh. and this music is telling you this is the future is right now we are dealing with this now this is something that we can't wait for even though the sonorities even though it sounds like something you've never heard before you should have heard this should have been right. heard right yeah all the time all along and it didn't have that uh it didn't punch out into the universe 
in this way yet for whatever reason and it finally had to happen that's what this music says to me you mentioned creation myth specifically as well right at the top of the record um are there any other specific tracks that kind of protrude in your mind as really sticking with you you know they they all jump around in these different ways and then come back you know they keep uh, referencing themselves too, I think there was there's a couple yeah. songs that they talk about being in the grave, or um, you know talking about you know when I was buried or something like that. Um, there was there's a there's one that I love that it just jars me every time. This one, no, I think it's Noise Boys, and I, <laughs> I think for me it's the it's the well the title for one is is makes me smile because I think what it's referencing is this. Um, you know this genre we find ourselves in and sometimes the uniformity of that yes. um but i think in that song she says uh you know would you trade places with me you know and that's, <laughs> I, I always i think of that all the time you know i just think of i, I just think of the, the sonority of that one too that's the most kind of industrial sounding of, yeah. of all the tracks and um uh, I'm speechless to think about some of the, some of these things, and I'm I think I believe there's some a new album coming out soon that I'm gonna definitely be be listening out for. But this I, there's a lot of exciting things happening with you know rap and hip hop. Clipping is another group that I yeah you know totally love the 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 way that noise is integrated into that and it, it, more mother's work clippings work makes me, really makes me surprised that it didn't happen before you know it didn't happen sooner and um you know obviously artists have played with those sonorities before but i think these uh, these two groups successfully merged those and it's really powerful voices that are coming out of both of those musics and it's you know I, I really do hesitate to use these uh, terms like you know horror horror music or anything like right. that because <laughs> it's, so, it's what is being said in these is so much more important to to reduce it to to a genre like that as if it's a, mo- a movie or something. Final question for you, Raven, which I like to to ask people is: if you really want to listen to a record, um, it sounds like actually when I've heard you mention in interviews, given the amount of work you're working on that's of your own, it doesn't sound like you get heaps of time to listen to other music too. But if you really want to soak up a record the best you can, is there a particular way that you most enjoy to do that? Like a particular place, environment, anything like that? Yeah, that's a good question. You're you're right. I I cannot listen to anything if I'm working on on a piece of music. I can if you know if it's the endling stuff where we're editing. I think in in those downtimes, I definitely take advantage of of trying to listen to to things. The only time I get to listen is if I'm driving somewhere. If mm. I'm you know on a road trip, and I was I was just traveling a couple weeks ago out on the Navajo reservation and radio stations come in and out so that you can't rely on those. <laughs> um, 
I, I think I've, I've paid my dues listening to uh, Silence. <laughs> <laughs> and so no more of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, now you can, now one can load up a, a phone or something, you know, with tons of music. And so those are my opportunities to do so. But I, I, I feel, you know, a lot of guilt that I can't keep up on some of my favorite artists. One project I did earlier this year with, uh, with CCA Wattis in San Francisco was to start an online radio station. And it actually yeah. was online and pirate station called Radio Coyote. And so this was an opportunity to just load the thing up with tons of music, you know, using these algorithms for good purposes and uh, <laughs> just letting it, you know, float through all the different permutations and combinations of delivering music to anybody who was listening. And so for that that time, those months of programming that that station, um, you know, we had a lot of people making original content, interviews, uh, radio pieces, and um, different kinds of documentary kinds of uh, audio pieces as well. And in between all of that work, I would program just you know loaded up with tons of stuff, and that gave me that. I feel that gave me, you know, a little bit, put me a little bit back on track to catching up with some, some things and learning about new music, you know, had guest DJs contribute. That was, that was a lot of nice, uh, nice hours of listening, Mm. Uh, hours, days, months, weeks. And now, now we've actually passed on that, uh, that station onto a Tulsa, Oklahoma collective who also I collaborated with on that American Ledger too. Uh, they are now the stewards of Radio Coyote and having members of that community, uh, you know, share their stories, their ideas, their sounds. Awesome. I'll include a link to that as well. I actually checked that out whilst you were doing your thing on Radio Coyote and it was it was great. Like I had a lot of time to listen working from home. So <laughs> thanks for transmitting those frequencies over here. Ah, um, thanks for listening. <laughs> well, Raven, this has been... Fabulous. Thank you so much for talking about, I mean, your work so much, but also these three important records. It's been great speaking with you. Yeah, thank you, Jack. And to everyone listening, we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye.